Today we will finish up in the book of Haggai, so if you'll begin to turn there. Next week we'll begin a new series in James. If you haven't found a pattern, I like to alternate between Old and New Testaments and going through shorter books of the Bible to begin with. Eventually we'll get to some longer books, but if we get to Genesis, it'll take us probably over a year to do that. So we're going to hold off on that for a while and preach through some shorter books of the Bible. Uh, So James will begin next week, but in the book of Haggai, we're going to finish this out beginning in verse 10. I'm going to read the text. It says, On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time, when one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would only be ten. And when one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would only be twenty. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord." Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones and kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So we come to the end of this book. Now, as we begin, we've all heard the phrase, going through the motions. You can go through the motions about almost anywhere. Another phrase you often hear, especially in customer service, is fake it until you make it. You ever heard that before? Fake it until you make it. You know, in customer service, you may be having a particular bad day, and depending on where you work, you, 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 know, you may not really want to go to work that day. But yeah, you got to put your customer service smile on. You know what I mean? You got to put your game face on, and, and if you you know if you can't make it, fake it. So you might be having some difficulties personally, but you got to go to your job and say, "Hey, welcome to Walmart or wherever it is," and put that smile on. Now, when dealing with customer service, fake it till you make it is not horrible advice. You got to do that. Sometimes you just got to go through the motions till you get through the day. But when it comes to obedience to God and serving Him, it's actually pretty terrible advice. When it comes to obedience to God and serving Him and the advance of the gospel, our heart, not just our actions, matter. In the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, 
Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You can imagine hearing those words for the first time. Well, if I profess faith in Christ, I'm professing Jesus as Lord. What are you what are you telling me that I might not end up there? And what Jesus says, he says on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, these weren't really Christians, even if they profess to be. He says, the, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven. They were externally doing the right things, but from a heart of lawlessness. We also know the story of the Pharisee and tax collector. The Pharisee is kind of standing far off and... He's saying, Lord, I I thank God that I'm not like this tax collector. I've done this and this and this and list off all these things that he's done. The tax collector bows before the Lord and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's the one that went home justified. It's not just our actions that matter, but it's our heart. And so if we're going to serve the Lord with holy obedience, first thing I want us to see is that we must serve God from a pure heart. As the word of the Lord comes to Haggai again, the Lord says to ask the priest about a couple of Old Testament laws. Now, as we look at them, they're kind of obscure. But as we look here, the first one says, if a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food or wine or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. So the idea here is, Holiness does not transfer to somebody else. So an Old Testament law, but if we applied that to our lives, just because one person is pursuing holiness and righteousness, that does not transfer onto you. You have to pursue righteousness and holiness on your own. But yet the opposite is not true. Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, Will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. According to Old Testament law, if someone was unclean and they touched someone else, that person became unclean. Now, those are Old Testament laws. And so, you know, you think of the condition of leprosy. Leprosy was considered a condition of unclean and there were all kinds of ceremonial laws that they had to stay away from the community for so many days and whatnot. Because the idea was that if you touch somebody that was unclean, you yourself became unclean. Now, that is not that was an Old Testament law. We're not we're not unclean by touching someone physically. But spiritually. And so what we see here and and where Haggai goes with this is he says, so is this people. And so is this nation before me. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. You see, what was going on is that they had started building the temple. They were doing the right thing. They were starting to obey the Lord. But their heart wasn't right. 
So they seemed to be doing the right things, but their hearts were not pure. John Calvin says in his commentary on Haggai, he says, Hence the definition must be borne in mind that works, however splendid they may be, appear before our eyes, are of no value or importance to God except that they flow from a pure heart. Now think of when they were building the Tower of Babel. They were building a tower to make a name for themselves. Now here they're building a temple, which is what God told them to do. But if they're doing it with impure motives, it might as well be torn down. Think of the woman who brought Jesus only two mites, a day's wages, which was all she had. Yet she did so out of the pure motive to glorify and honor the Son of God, while others may have brought him more money, but it was nothing in comparison to this woman's sacrifice. Again, as we think about the people in Matthew chapter 7, all the things that they did for Jesus, yet Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. They were doing the right things, but not from the right heart. The Pharisee again with the tax collector. He was doing all the right things externally, outwardly. He was very religious. But inwardly, Jesus says they are like whitewashed tombs. We aren't justified or made righteous by our religious performance, but by our heart of faith. See, one can preach the best sermons. One can show up to church every Sunday, serve in every capacity imaginable. But God doesn't care about that. He cares about our hearts. He wants your obedience, but he wants your obedience to flow from a pure heart. Psalm 51, 16 through 19 Reminds us that God cares first that we have a broken spirit and a contrite heart before we obey and offer sacrifices. Again, we could look even further in Scripture, going back to Genesis with Cain and Abel. Cain brought the right sacrifice, but not with the right heart, and God did not accept it. So as we think about obedience... It's not enough that we merely do externally what God has told us to do as if we're checking off a list. Okay, yeah, I've done that. I've done that. I'm externally marking it off. I'm doing really good. We're just like the Pharisee if that's what we're doing. But God calls us to serve with holiness from a pure heart. What is your motive? If our motive is anything but the glory and honor of God and his son Jesus Christ, we're not serving with a pure motive. God calls us to serve from a pure heart. And that's what he was getting at with these Israelites here, is that it's not enough just to do externally the work of the Lord, but they need to do it with purity as they were working, and every work of their hands was unclean. And number two, when we serve God, we must serve with a repentant heart. As we continue on, In the text, Haggai asked them to consider from this day onward, and he begins to describe again how hard their life actually was prior to to starting the work of building the temple. He goes on, verse 15, But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, before you set out to obey... 
From that time, when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would only be one or 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would only be 20. He says, look, your life was harder. You, you, you were living in your paneled houses. You were trying to live a comfortable life, but it was hard for you. Now, why was it hard? That was verse 17. It says, I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me. Now, I want to correct a faulty theological understanding that many may have, and it's that God doesn't cause what we perceive as bad things, but merely allows it. Now, how does this text read? Does it say, I allowed you to be smitten with blasting wind, mildew, and hail? No, it literally says, I smote you. God is doing this. But then we have to ask why. And even as we continue on before we ask the why, Isaiah 45, 5-7 tells us this, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, this is hard for us to wrap our minds around. The Lord makes well-being and creates calamity. Here he is smiting the people of God with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Now, why does he do these things? Now, look at this particular text in Haggai. What is his purpose? It says, yet you did not come back to me. The reason the Lord is bringing this upon the people of God in this particular time, in this particular setting, was to bring them to repentance. They were not serving him. They were living their comfortable, cushy lives in their paneled houses, disobeying him. And so God made it hard for them, but his purpose was to draw them to repentance. Here in Isaiah... Is reminding people of who he is so that people know that he is the Lord. He is the one and only true God. The judgment and discipline of the Lord here was to lead them to repentance. Is there an area of your life that is particular challenge, particular challenging right now? God may be getting your attention and calling you to repentance. Now examine your life. Does God occupy first place in your life? Now help me out here. If you were to ask the average American, if I only had blank, I would be happy and fulfilled. If I only had blank, I'd be happy and fulfilled. How would most people fill in that blank? Throw some answers out. Love? Anybody else? Friendship? 
friendship. And those aren't bad things. Anything else? Anybody else? Money. Money. Right. Now give me some money. What else? None of those things are bad, are they? Love is a good thing. But when we begin to say, if I only had love, I would be happy and fulfilled. That may lead us to go looking for love, like the country song says, in all the wrong places. As I'm seeking to be loved, I want to be loved, and so I'm going to do whatever I can so that I can feel this feeling that I desire. But what's it going to do? It's going to leave me empty. Because there's only one who can really give us the happiness and fulfillment that we need. If I only had friendship, it's kind of the same idea. We long for relationships. We are not meant to live in isolation. But if our, our desire of friendship overtakes our desire of, our, of a love for God, then we're going to be seeking those friendships in the wrong places. We're going to see, see, be seeking those people who will constantly give us approval and constantly tell us what we want to hear and those people that we like to have around. But God has called to unite us with the body of Christ and the church and a people of God who may not always tell us exactly what we want to hear, but may tell us what we need to hear. Money. Everybody wants more money. My kids love money. I like making money. But if only I had money, I'd be happy and fulfilled. We need money, don't we? We got to pay the bills. We got to pay the mortgage. We got to... You got to go buy groceries, you got to fill up our gas tanks. That takes a little bit more money now than it used to. But if I only had money, more money, I would be happy and fulfilled. The problem with that is, is that if that is what our desire is, and if that is what we think will give us fulfillment and happiness, then we are going to seek to gain that in any way possible. might steal, might rob a bank because I just want more money. I've got to have more money. I might start doing corrupt practices in my job. I might try to pull a 20 here and there while somebody's not looking because I just want more money that's going to make me happy. And then it leads us down to, in a sinful path. If we put anything else in that blank other than Jesus Christ, we're like the Israelites who need comfort to be happy and fulfilled. Until we can sing the old hymn and mean it, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Until we can sing the old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than anything else. And God is calling us to repent and to serve him with a repentant heart. That Jesus would be the pinnacle of our affections. Number three. When we serve God, we must serve God with a grateful heart. In verse 19, it continues on. Is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the big tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it still has not borne fruit. So even though they have 
repented, even though they're now serving God, they're building the temple, yet they are still in these adverse circumstances. Yet Jesus says, yet from this day on, I will bless you. They deserve to deal with the consequences of sin. If we make bad choices, there are always disastrous results to those choices. So when we see in this text, from this day on, I will bless you, that is, that is grace. They don't deserve the blessing of God, yet he says he will bless them. And church, you and I don't deserve the blessing of God either. We, we sing the song, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. It is all of grace. So as we serve God and as we commit to obeying him and as he pours out his blessing upon us, don't think for a moment that this blessing is somehow a reward for your service. It's not. It's all an act of grace and we must serve with a grateful heart. His blessings are undeserved. And as he pours them out to us, whatever they may be in your life, we must serve with gratitude. And our service and our obedience is literally an overflow of that gratitude for what God has done for us. Not only the eternal blessing of Christ and salvation, but the temporal blessings he gives us today, such as freedom as we celebrate this weekend. We are grateful for that. So we must serve from a heart of gratitude. And number four, we must serve, if we want to serve God with holy obedience, we must serve from a trusting heart. We come to the end of the text. As the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms and the nations. I will overthrow the chariots of the riders and their horses, and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord, I will take you, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord. And then, we get to this text. The Lord promised to bless them from now on, as we've said, and that leads us to gratitude for God's undeserved grace in our lives. He then goes on to promise this day where he will overthrow kingdoms, where Israel would be restored and there will be peace. How do we know that God will establish his kingdom and give people peace? He then tells Zerubbabel that he will make him like a signet ring and that he has been chosen for a specific purpose. And then the text leaves us there. What on earth does this mean? It's kind of a cliffhanger. A signet ring was a ring that a king used to seal an envelope. As it was delivered, you knew that this letter belonged to the king. And it contains something important. Now, this passage doesn't make a lot of sense until we get to Matthew chapter 1. And if you'll turn there, Matthew chapter 1. Remember that the Bible 
is one story of God's old unfolding plan to redeem the world in Jesus. So when we get to the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew doesn't begin with Adam. So we know it's not a straightforward genealogy. There are names particularly chosen, and it's interesting to see how this genealogy flows. It reveals much to us. We see that Jesus came from Abraham in verse 1. Remember what God promised to Abraham. He said to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Well, how is that promise fulfilled? It's promised through Jesus Christ. We see that Jesus is from the line of David. Remember, when God told David he would establish his throne forever, that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And then we get to verse 12. It says this, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. You see that? And that's the name that we have right here in the book of Haggai. What he is telling Zerubbabel. So, Zerubbabel, I've chosen you as the one who will come, the Messiah. What was he chosen for? He was chosen to bring about the one who would one day restore God's kingdom and establish peace. Yet we know that Jesus didn't come to restore political power, which is what Israel thought would happen. It's not Persia who's over Israel now in, in the time of Jesus, but it's Rome. And in the book of Acts, the, the disciples are asking, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They, they knew this promise in Haggai where it says, one day I will overthrow the thrones and kingdoms and I will destroy them on that day. And Zerubbabel, you're going to be like a signet ring because I've chosen you to bring this about. I don't think Zerubbabel even knew what all that meant. The, the disciples questioned in Acts, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? It's, it's not a bad one. This is what they've been expecting. It is not quite what Jesus came to do to restore political power in that moment when he was alive walking this earth. Yet one day Jesus will overthrow all kingdoms. One day Jesus will establish peace for God's people. That day hasn't happened yet, but just as God kept his promise to Zerubbabel, to David, and to Abraham, we can trust that one day God will overthrow all kingdoms and establish peace. Even in our own country where we see political divide and chaos, we may have to endure that for longer than we desire, but we can trust that one day there will be peace for the people of God. All we have to do is trust him. So we must continue to serve, even though that God has yet to overthrow all kingdoms through Jesus. But one day he will, and we will live in a new heaven and new earth without political divide, without racial tension, without school shootings and denominational scandals. And I know you long for that day, and I long for that day. But even as we trust God, we must not be idle, but must serve him in the world in which we live, trusting him because he's faithful and true and keeps his word. We're called to obey. We're called to obey God. As we look at this book, the Israelites initially had a fire about them when they returned from captivity. 
But quickly, fear set in and they were forced to stop working. Fear gave way to apathy, but the Lord stirred up their spirit once again to begin living in obedience to God's clear word to them. But that stirring was soon stifled by discouragement as what they were building didn't seem all that impressive or worth their efforts. But they were encouraged because God was going to do something great. They just needed to be faithful. But mere outward obedience is not what God's after. He doesn't want you to just do the right things and check them off the list. He wants you to have the right heart. And only when we have a right heart will we joyfully submit to him in obedience. Church, are you obeying him? Who is he calling you to tell about Jesus? Have you obeyed? Every now and then we need to come and we need to check our hearts. Are your motives pure in your obedience and service to him? Are you seeking to obey him from a life of holiness? Is there any sin in your life that you haven't repented of? Are you living your life out of gratitude for the blessing of God on your life? Are you really trusting God to establish his kingdom? Or have you grown doubtful like the Israelites after waiting so long? Waiting is hard. He told them here, I will overthrow the thrones and kingdoms, and it hasn't happened yet. It didn't happen when Jesus came. It didn't happen when he ascended. But yet one day Jesus will do it. Waiting can be difficult. Like my kids when they know that grandma's coming over and they're looking out the window. It's an hour drive for them. That's an eternity. So they're looking out the window. Was she here yet? Is she here yet? Well, no, she's not even close. Maybe she hadn't even left yet, but, but they know she's coming, so they're looking out, they're waiting. Grow patient with waiting. We see this promise that one day God will bring peace, will overthrow kingdoms. We know that Jesus came, we know that He said one day He will do it, but yet we're still waiting, waiting to be hard. Are you trusting Him? A lot of times we can grow doubtful. Well, maybe, maybe he's not. And Jesus said he will do it and he will do it. We can trust him because he is faithful and true. Are you walking in obedience to him? And are you walking in holy obedience with a pure heart, a repentant heart, a grateful heart, and a trusting heart? Let's pray.